the rule I've had for myself with my YouTube channel is my filmmaking comes first. If YouTube is not benefiting my filmmaking, then it's hurting it. And so there's months where I'm so busy filmmaking that I can't get to my YouTube and I'm just okay with that. Cause if I'm not growing as a director, then my YouTube channel will actually be hurting because I'm not providing new content. I'm not providing new footage. I already feel like I reuse so much of the documentaries in the past. I wish I had new documentary footage to show people. So for me, I, I want to be filmmaking so that people feel like they're listening to a filmmaker who does YouTube, not a YouTuber who talks about filmmaking. Welcome to Wave Social Podcast, powered by Arcade Studios. My name's Mike. I'm here with my co-host, Mitzi, and we've curated a show for digital marketers, advertisers, and modern entrepreneurs who want to stop chasing the tide and start making waves online. Each episode, we'll sit down with the tastemakers and strategic minds behind some of the most engaged communities and up-and-coming brands. We'll pull back the curtain on their strategies and experiences to uncover the methodology behind their seismic impact. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Before we get started, we want to tell you about We Edit Podcasts. We launched our show, Wave Social Podcast, last year, and uh, it was something we've been looking forward to for a long time, but there was a lot of stuff that we just didn't know how to do ourselves. Things like audio, engineering, transcription, all that good stuff like editing, mm-hmm. you know? We don't have a clue. So we pulled in the We Edit Podcast team to help us with that stuff so we could focus on the stuff that we know best. Exactly. So we get to focus on interviewing guests, finding the best guests and the most valuable guests for our listeners. And they take care of all the editing. They make us sound really good. They take out all the ums and ahs. And we get a finished product that we're really proud of. Yeah. So if you're looking to start a podcast, we want to introduce you to these guys because they can just help you rise above the noise while everyone else is starting a podcast too. This can help you just get a leg up on the rest. Yeah. So if you want to join us with the We Edit Podcast team, go to wavesocialpodcast.com slash we edit podcasts with an S at the end to get 15% off your first month of services. Can't wait to hear your show. Okay, Mitzi, we're back at it again. Mm -hmm. This is going to be fun. It's been an interesting time right now, and we're going to chat a little bit more about that later. But first off, the reason we picked today's guest, which is Mark Bone, he's uh, an incredible, multi-talented, award-winning director based in Toronto. He's directed numerous documentary films and commercials as well for brands such as Nike and Mercedes-Benz and even Nikon. He's an inspired director in the next wave of new young directors who create compelling cinematic stories and meaningful work with a slant to sustainable and socially responsible endeavors. Mm -hmm. So that credentials him right there. But the reason we really worked hard to to get Mark into the show was just because you guys have been asking for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've been asking for someone in film as a specific like artistic craft. And what what we liked about him especially was that he has tons of experience, not just on the brand side, but also in like the more longer form artistic storytelling platform of mm-hmm. documentaries, which just brings a different spin to things. Totally. Yeah. And I love that his work kind of focuses on people and empathy and feeling real moments, which I think is really important for us right now, given the COVID-19 crisis that we're all in. It's really nice to kind of tune out some of that panic and some of that fear. And I know a lot of us who are still working are in the trenches of helping our businesses survive during this season. So hopefully this is a little 
break from all of that noise and you can kind of settle into an, a podcast episode about heart and empathy and telling real compelling stories. Yeah, and it's even a bit of a departure from the type of dialogue we often have. Mm-hmm. You know, we try to be a good mix of abstract and big picture, but also practical. Mm-hmm. But I just loved kind of the artistic flair in this conversation. Mm-hmm. You still end up with some good sound bites at the end of the day of take homes that can that can help you benefit as a creative or as a marketer. But you can tell that one of Mark's core values is empathy. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was just really interwoven into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even if filmmaking isn't part of your job, or if you're not like necessarily you know, related, doing anything related to filmmaking, I think this episode is still a really nice departure from the normal noise that you're likely facing the the way we are. Yeah. And we do still translate it into marketing, Mm -hmm. you know, and even social media and how to set your priorities. That was one specific thing that I think resonated with both of us was not just over committing ourselves like lots of creatives tend to do and just crashing around with all of it, mm-hmm. but actually identifying out of everything that we're doing, what's the most important thing yeah. to me, you know, and Definitely. making that, that the true North and then everything else comes secondary mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. It even got me thinking about my personal priorities and business priorities. Like this podcast is definitely a priority, but apart from that, we are marketers working on brands and we own an agency. So kind of thinking about what's going to make the podcast the best outcome, which is kind of what Mark talked about. And that's by being a great practitioner and being really good at what you do. And so that kind of got me thinking that like I'm a marketer first and then a podcast host second. And hopefully that makes the latter better. Yeah, definitely. And I, I don't, I know we try not to get too personal on this show, but I think it can translate to our personal lives too. You know, it got me thinking about how like, like what, what is my main priority outside of work? And mm-hmm. I'm a husband. I'm also a dad. I'm also a friend and a brother and mm-hmm. a son, you know, so where does that all come in? And just reminding myself that I'm a husband first mm-hmm. and th- that our marriage is most important. And then close second to that is our little, <laughs> little boo running around at home. She's so cute. Mm-hmm. But we need to ask ourselves those questions and be honest more often than we do. And once we kind of articulate what those priorities are, then then that allows us to just really know when to say yes and even more importantly, mm-hmm. know when to say no. Yeah. And like Mark said, how loud and important your no's are. Yeah. I also love he has an analogy in this episode about this season and being in it like feeling like it's a cocoon, like both physically and metaphorically. And what are you going to be when you come out of this cocoon? And like cocoons are, you know, find small spaces. <laughs> yeah. And typically they're part of a transformation process. Right. You come out of a cocoon as a butterfly. And so like, what are you going to come out of this cocoon season as yeah how are you going to maximize this time to really Mm -hmm. transform yourself into like a better version of you Mm -hmm. what did that make you think like what are you trying to become during all this craziness while we're self-distancing and working from home and all that yeah i think i thought a lot of things about learning i think our lives are really busy and we're on social media a lot for our work And I don't know how much of that is actually helping me be smarter. (laughs) And so I I really want to spend this time like investing and bettering myself. Like I even was talking to someone on our team today who's taking a free class at Yale. Um, Yale is doing like, and I think a lot of Ivy League universities are doing free online classes or certain classes are free. And one of those classes is like, the most requested and most attended class of all of Yale 
Bell's history and it's about like happiness and the psychology behind a good life or to some, I'm butchering it, but that's kind of like the gist of it. But yeah, just kind of taking opportunities to like learn and like dive into subjects that I've always been curious about. How about you? Yeah, I think I'm going to get a little bit transparent. You've been privy to this process for me, but for the last little while, man, I've been in marketing for like a decade now. And for the last little while, I kind of feel like I'm in my like career midlife crisis a little bit where I'm just really spinning my tires trying to identify what my unique perspective is as a as a business or marketing leader. So f- for me, I think it's less about learning something new mm-hmm. and it's more about adding words to what I already know in a way that can help other people. And I think like we've been doing this podcast, which is great and it's content for people that benefits them, but it's always with a guest, you know? So it's fun to extract that value, but I've just been craving some resolution to like, what can I actually offer to people outside of just marketing execution through our team, Mm -hmm. but as like a consultant or a guide. Mm -hmm. So that's been something. And I feel like I've made progress already in these first couple of weeks of the self-distancing craziness. And I'm excited to keep fleshing that out further, but I just put that out to people that are listening to is really spend some time, not just to learn, but allow that learning and like reading or listening to also just kind of get your wheels turning as to what you truly believe, what your values are and like what you've learned to be true Mm -hmm. and how you can articulate that to other people in a way that benefits them. Wow. (laughs) Sorry, went deep there for a minute. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So good. Well, should we get into the episode? Yeah. I think first what we've been doing is reading reviews Mm -hmm. on each one. So I pulled one for this week and we've been getting a lot of reviews and we really appreciate that. We just yeah. want to say that we've had a lot for just being in, in season two and a lot is never enough. You know, we'll take more for sure. But thank you for the kind words so far. We're so glad that we have a bought in listener audience and we want to keep knowing what it is you're looking for, what you're wanting to learn and what you're loving about the show. Because that, like we said, that that's what kind of set this one up for us. Definitely. That's how we knew that this was the content to put in your ears. So mm-hmm. to get to the review, we got one from Hank Forrester. It's a five stars. It says awesome new podcast. He says these two are incredibly insightful professionals and have an awesome curation of guests so far. Looking forward to more. Wow. Thanks so much, Hank. Yeah, Hank, what a guy. I don't <laughs> think we met before, but so stoked that you're loving the show. And mm-hmm. uh, we've got more really exciting guests coming down the pipe. We actually just decided to extend the season by a few episodes just because we know you're all sitting at home trying to figure out what's next and consuming a lot. So, mm-hmm. and on that note, too, we also came up with some guiding principles for marketers. And a lot of you guys are in the trenches with your brands or an agency or a creator and just some guidelines on how to respond to the COVID-19 crisis. So if you want to check those out, you can find them in our show notes or you can go to at Wave Social on Instagram and watch the IGTV. Yeah. For a quick spark notes, I think the most important thing is don't stop marketing. Mm -hmm. You know, when things get crazy, that's the most important time to keep the communication lines open between a brand and its audience, its customers. Mm -hmm. And this is an opportunity to pivot a little bit and not just focus on selling products, but Mm -hmm. actually like how can you even increase or improve that trust relationship that you're building with your customers. So more where that came from, like Mincy said in the show notes, and uh, let us know what you think as well. Yes. This is a dialogue. Yeah, we want to know what you're learning, what you're experiencing, and also what guests that we can have on the show that will help you. Yeah, and if you haven't been following us on social yet, we're at Wave Social, and we'll continue sharing resources that we come across. Mm-hmm. If it, things are changing every single day, mm-hmm. so we'll keep you updated. And I uh, hope you guys are staying safe and healthy out there. Should we get into it? Let's go. All right, here it comes. 
Hold up. Before we get into it, I want to tell you about ClearBank. ClearBank provides capital for e-commerce brands who want to grow their business through digital advertising. As agency partners, we get to work with a lot of e-commerce brands that are trying to build their business online. A common obstacle that they come up against is they start with a small budget, they see some exciting early results, but then they don't have the capital available to scale. So that's what ClearBank does so well. You give them access to the back end of your website. They have an algorithm that analyzes the health of your store. And then as quickly as 48 hours, they can give you access to the funds that you need to add to your advertising campaigns. And you don't have to give up any equity. There's also no fixed interest rate, and you don't have to risk your credit score to get access to funds for ads. As a ClearBank agency partner, we get a preferred rate, which we're happy to extend to you, our listeners. So head to wavesocialpodcast.com slash ClearBank, that's C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C, to get access to that rate. Mark, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. We're pumped to have you. Just to jump right in, you're a young gun in the filmmaking space, and we want to know how you got there. So can you rewind a little bit for us and map out your career trajectory? Yeah, sure. No, I'll have to rewind back to 2005. I was graduating high school, and I didn't know what I really wanted to do. So I went to like a humanitarian type of school. It was called YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And I spent uh, time training here in Canada f- for it. And then we went overseas to Egypt to help with the refugees who were leaving Sudan during the Darfur War. And uh, I was working with like these doctors over there. And I had no medical training, so I wasn't allowed to obviously administer any any sort of help for people in that way. But they asked me just to sit with the refugees who were fleeing. You know, they made this trip across a desert just to get to Cairo, Egypt. And, you know, they've been through just the worst things for some in some cases, like over a decade, my job was just to sit with them in this church while they were waiting to get medical treatment and just hear their stories. They just like just ask them questions and let them talk to you, like because it was really important for them just to for their own uh, peace of mind, just to for people to hear their story. So that was my job, and quickly realized that there's so many incredible stories that you could never even come with up with like the best script writers in these people's lives. And uh, I was really touched by their lives, their resilience and their, their vigor, their, just their ability to overcome so much. And I was like, I think I want to, I want to tell these people stories, but I didn't really know how, but it was actually coming back to Canada when, you know, I'd been editing videos for like some organizations just cause I knew how to work Adobe Premiere. And it was my dad who was actually like, I think you might be like, have like a gift with filmmaking. And so that was kind of took someone else kind of recognizing that in me. I, d- I never think I had the confidence to actually think I could do it. So then uh, two years after that humanitarian school, I applied to film school and focused on the documentary stream. And that's kind of from there. I can go into more depth, but that's just kind of, that was the start of the career was film school. And then went into the industry after that. What was your entry point into the industry after school? Like, did yeah. you get a job somewhere? Yeah. Did you- it's kind of wild. In my last year, my school, you, you half of the year you worked on a film and half the year you uh, did an internship. And I did my internship at this like research center that the government had set up for filmmakers because they wanted to draw like international filmmakers to Toronto. And I was researching 3D stereoscopic at the time. And this is right around the time that the movie Avatar was coming out. So I had to just study how to edit 3D because there was no information about this. It was like the Wild West with 3D. It was like suddenly everyone had to shoot every movie in 3D and no one knew how to do it. So I wrote some like white papers 
and put them online on this website of like about how to edit 3D in Final Cut. And before I was even graduated school, I was getting calls from like Michael Bay's company for Transformers. And uh, my first job out of school was at this demonstration and the Queen of England came and I showed her like in like, you know, like 30 seconds how 3D works. <laughs> and like that, we were on oh, set with that, the Queen. So yeah, cool. it was, it was wild. And so then I, I, found a niche in IMAX movies, like these big natural history documentaries. And so traveled filming polar bears and, you know, the butterfly migration and all sorts of wild stuff for a little while. And my job was to manage 3D on set, essentially be there for the director and the cinematographer to show them and control the 3D so that it actually looked good in the theaters. And unfortunately, there was a lot of bad 3D. So people stopped shooting it on set and they went and did it all in post-production. So actually two years after school, I was like, thought, you know, this is amazing. Like I have all this amazing jobs, all the work kind of dried up. And that's when, um, I had no more work in 3D. <laughs> so I just started shooting my own stuff again. And some aid organizations from the past reached out to me to do some filmmaking for them. And so I started shooting these kind of like mini documentaries and was able to carve a niche out as a documentary director, which was, which is, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that 3D actually kind of died off because I wouldn't be where I am today in my career had it, had it still been going. I'd probably still be just traveling as a stereographer. Crazy, man. So just for a point of reference, can you tell us like how old you were or what year that was when yeah. you kind of transitioned from 3D into doing your own mini documentaries? Exactly. So I think it's a great question because people always focus on being really awesome when they're young. And I think like it's sad how many people are actually doing really good in their career or actually doing really well in their craft, but are feeling crappy about it because they look over and there's a 23 year old killing it, or there's a 20 year old, you know? So I, I went to humanitarian school when I was 18 or YWAM. No one calls it humanitarian school. It's just what I call it. It sounds, it sounds, so it sounds like boarding school or something, <laughs> but I went, uh, went and did that at 18, started film school at 20, graduated at 23, but no one really reached out to me as a quote unquote director until maybe I'm trying to do some math here, I guess until I was like 25 or 26, which is still young, but put it this way. I didn't shoot like a film that I really liked or that I was truly proud of my own until I was probably about like 29. So my twenties and my dad's always encouraged me on this. He's like, your twenties are for about like learning your craft. Like it's about you really honing in on that. But, um, I know. I, th I think now with especially social media, you know, there's kids in like grade schools who are just like really good cheerleaders who have like hundreds of millions of followers. And and, uh, <laughs> and so suddenly we're like, oh, shoot, they're successful. What am I? I'm, I'm, I'm far behind, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So uh, how long ago was that? You said you were around like 25 or something 20, like that. 25, when you 26. Yeah. I would say tw I, 2014. I'm 32 now. So what's that Got math? Yeah. It. So yeah, 20. <laughs> let's do some math. That's 26. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. I, I, I play a lot of Yahtzee these days because we're all quarantined. So my my fast math is uh, is coming back. You're on nice. the ball. I like yeah. it. Nice yeah. man. So you're you're quite multifaceted at this point when it comes to your craft. Not only do you obviously now direct documentaries, but you also work with global brands, and you even have your own YouTube channel, which is obviously more educational content, but. I want to know, like, where's your passion in all of this? Like, I, I think I know the answer, but can you articulate a little bit what, what your favorite type of work is at the end of the day out of all of it? Well, the two things that would drive me and at the core of my work, and I think it's important to know, like, you got to hone your, 
your idea right down to something very precise. And for me, it would be empathy and education. I guess my films, I want them to be empathetic. I want people to experience a journey in someone else's life that they haven't. Just, just like I did way back in 2005 when I met these refugees. I was like, I haven't walked a mile in their shoes, but I would love to capture that because it would, you know, it's so compelling. It's so powerful. And then I guess in some ways, education, like there was no rubric to become a director. I just kind of had to stumble around and try and force some people to be my mentors. And luckily, I, I met some really amazing people along the way. Like for a year or two, I, I got to meet up with like the Canadian film director, Adam McGoyan. He kind of mentored me in some ways and had me shoot some stuff for some of his movies, which was cool. But I found, you know, there's so many young people who, like I was saying, who are just they're paralyzed with fear at the beginning of their career, not knowing like, how do I shoot my own documentary? How, how do I become a director? They just don't know. And there's no real, like you go to film school, but there still isn't a rubric after that. So I wanted to kind of create, that's where the YouTube channel came about where I was like, you know, if I could help some people like calm their minds and, you know, bring some peace to their soul while they're trying to create, then they're going to make better projects if they're not just stressing out. So that's where that came from. So yeah, I think for me, I have a, re a really distinct style in my documentaries. And so I only want to work with brands who kind of want to emulate that style because that's what I'm best at. And I know what I do and I know what I can't do. And so I try to just work on projects that are in that realm. Not, And I think that's actually, you grow when you put boundaries in your work, when you say like, this is the genre I'm going to focus on. And I think you see that with all great directors. Tarantino has a style. Scorsese has a style. Wes Anderson has a very distinct style. And there's boundaries within those styles. And so I'm trying to create boundaries in mind so that eventually someone can look at an image and go, oh, yeah, that's like Mark Bone. Hmm. That's super cool. I think that applies even beyond just filmmakers. Because yeah, I feel like once sure. you set boundaries in your like expertise, even, you can grow within that boundary. Like you become, you can become a thought leader the way you were around like 3D movie making, you know? And so I, I think some people try to just do all things in yeah. one like niche, but you don't need to. The, I think you grow more when you're really specific. Yeah. No, I think you're, I think you're right. I think that's just it. When you're like, look at amazing musicians, they, mm -hmm. they have a genre. You can obviously transition like mm -hmm. Taylor Swift was straight up country. Now she's pop and people will hate you along the way for that. But like, that's okay. But you can see she's not going off doing like, I don't know, classical violin and then like right. jumping over to like, like rap, like, like it kind of becomes a, you become Thank a God. parody of yourself in a way. <laughs> Thank right. God. Yeah. yeah for sure. So talk to us specifically about documentaries for now. Like a big one for you was a couple years ago, following a group of volunteer paramedics in the Dominican Republic. I'm not going to try to say it because I don't want to mispronounce it. I'll let Rescate. you say it first. Rescate. That's Rescate. what I would have guessed. <laughs> yeah, really. Oh, right most track. people are like, oh, I love your film, Rescate. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my, my wife is Latina. So. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, Mitzi would have nailed it. Um, yeah, no, Rescate is a, it's a film that's close to my heart. Not only because the paramedics, you know, I really bonded with them through the, the creation of that film, but my best friend and a guy who gave me a lot of opportunities for filming humanitarian films because uh, he his name was Cole Brown and he uh, he was a full-time humanitarian down in the Dominican Republic and spent some time in Haiti as well because they were on the same island. And tragically, in 2016, he was returning from delivering uh, 
aid supplies in Haiti after a flood there. He was flying back in a small plane and they got caught in a storm and the plane went down into the ocean and crashed and they couldn't find any survivors or, or, or wreckage. So, you know, I got a call that, you know, Mark Cole just went down the ocean in a plane. So I actually jumped on a, a flight and flew down there the next day. And I came to the beach where they thought the plane might have crashed nearby. And there was some military there and police and no one was really doing anything. They were just kind of standing around. But there was this group of individuals out in the ocean who were like on this old beat up jet ski and they had like snorkels and just like they all had these matching t-shirts and they didn't have the best equipment, but they had so much heart. They were just like working so hard in the middle of the sun, in the middle of the day down in the Caribbean, which is like 40 degrees Celsius. And I spoke to this one Canadian who she lived down there and I was like, who are these people? And she was like, oh, they're, they're Riscate, they're Riscate Ambar. That's the full name. She's like, they're like the local paramedics. And at that time in Dominican, there was no 911. And what you have to understand with the Dominican, it's some years ranked as the most number one dangerous country to drive in the world. It's usually in the top two or three. I know they're trying to make efforts to to bring that down, but still it's such a dangerous country to drive in because there's so much drinking and driving and people drive so fast. And I could name a hundred other reasons why, but it's carnage. People die every night on the road, even in small towns. And these guys were the first and last line of defense for those 911 calls because there was no 911. And they were baseball players, taxi drivers, school teachers who at night would take shifts. You know, They'd all have a couple of shifts a week and they would, instead of going back home to their families, they would go stay at this car garage with this old beat up food catering van that they made into a makeshift ambulance and they would respond to all the emergency calls. And so I was like, man, these people are incredible. I got to make a movie about them. And, you know, as a doc filmmaker, you just, when you meet certain people, you're like, oh, I got to make a movie about you. And if anyone has seen Tiger King, which is like really popular (laughs) on Netflix right now, I'm sure that's what happened. You know, there's multiple people, even in the film, who tried to make a doc about about the guy. And you look at those people and you're like, oh, yeah, they're perfect for a doc. You know, they're wild and crazy. (laughs) Definitely. So, yeah, that's how uh, Rescate came about. So then I went down to Dominican and just lived with them for a couple of weeks and, you know, had meals with them and stayed at their, uh, their barracks, which was just like, you know, these thin mattresses like <laughs> on, above this two car garage. And all night long, we'd just hop in the ambulance and respond to all these crazy, crazy car accidents or emergencies or health emergencies. So yeah, that's how the that's film wild. came about. And you won a few awards for that one too, right? Yeah. We, we, uh, there's boom TV, which is like the, I think the most followed Vimeo channel out there and they're really cool. They, they, they gave us documentary of the year. And then we, yeah, we got into a lot of film festivals, won some cinematography awards. I don't know. There's, yeah, it was, it was a good run and got some Vimeo staff picks and stuff with that for it. So it's, it's a film that opened up so many doors for me. And it was like, you know, I was always like, why didn't I shoot a movie like this earlier? Like, I think I needed the skills that I developed through my twenties, but I guess the sad thing for me was I was like, I was waiting for someone to give me the opportunity to create a movie like that. But it was always just in my hands to go find the story. Now, obviously, I found the story through some terrible circumstances. But I re- what I realized is like, oh, I can make the movies that I desire. Like I have control of my career. So it was actually a really, really empowering experience. And in a way, it was a healing experience as well because it felt... Like I was close to my friend Cole being down there in Dominican, you know, filming this story on the same beaches that he walked before he passed. Yeah. Wow, man. In that vein of like control and and kind of just taking ownership over, over like creating that opportunity for that first film. 
Can you explain a little bit what that process looks like? Like you mentioned, sometimes you just meet people and you're like, I got to make a film about you. So from that point, what does it look like practically to take matters into your own hands and like get funding and like the team you need or the gear you need or whatever it, whatever goes into it? Can you flesh that out a bit? Yeah, there, I mean, there's that's the probably the most besides what camera do you, do you shoot that on? It's the next question I get on my YouTube channel is how do I fund a documentary? And there's no one answer, you know, because it, it is all changing. You can get private funding, you can go through a broadcaster, or you can do a GoFundMe, or you can just put your own money into it, which I've done all those things for films. And Riscate was one of those things where I was like, the, the story was so compelling to me. I just was like, I'm going to go do this. I'll figure out the money later. Like I'm going to front the cash for flights and paying for translators and all that. It actually happened that someone from my church, I was telling them about that and they were so touched by the story and, and they that they were like, how much money do you need? And I, I, it wasn't much at all. And I told them a number and then they're like, cool. And then like a week, like I think like a day later, they called me back. They're like, hey, me and my wife want to pay for this movie. Like we, we want to fund it. And it was crazy. And what he said, he goes, had, he's like, when you told me that number, he's like, the fact that you said you already bought plane flights, he's like, it showed me that you were like, you, you truly believed in this idea. You were sold out. So I think it's like, you got to put some of your own money and effort into it and, and people will see that passion. I think the toughest thing for getting funding is when you just kind of knock on someone's door, you're like, Hey, I have an idea. Give me money for it. You kind of have to show them that there is a means to an ends, that there is a way to recoup the money back or that there's a broadcaster who's going to buy it. And there's, there's lots of different ways. And tax credits in Canada are amazing. I just did my first broadcast documentary and the tax credits can be really lucrative lucrative and can, what the great thing with them is you get them like a, well, it's not great. You get them like a year after you submit for them. But the nice thing about that is they kind of fund the next film and then that film's tax credits fund the next film. It's kind of like you get suddenly just get this big check from the government. You put that into your next movie. So nice comes kind of cyclical. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of the idea from the government is that, that not only are you highlighting Canadians, but that you're putting that money back into the creating better art and putting, creating better entertainment. So yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. I, I can't give one answer, but I think crewing up your film with people who, are a little bit better than you is always a good idea because you're going to learn. They're going to help make better decisions. So I try now at the people who I hire, I'm like, is that person better than me at that position? You know, now you can't, you can't always work that way. It's sometimes good to mentor people and, and bring them along for the ride. But I'm, I'm also realizing that I sometimes have a ceiling on my films because I'm not always, I'm doing too much on my own or I'm not hiring the right people. You know, you want to hire like the best. Hmm. For sure. So how long was it? Like how much time passed between that day that you're on the beach trying to figure out who these guys in the on the jet skis were to when you actually bought flights and flew back out there to to follow along and what they were doing? Cole passed away October 16th. I know that it was two days before my, my wife's birthday. And then I went down, back down to Dominican beginning of January actually to film for an aid organization. And I tacked on a couple of days and that's when I went and spent a night with the Riscate guys. And that was the craziest night, one of the craziest nights of my life. Like I saw, I, I don't even want to say it. And I, like, I, <laughs> I saw so much that night and I was like, okay, this is, this is, I was kind of this like, God showed me that. And God was like, oh, are you ready for this? And like, is this what you want to do? <laughs> like, yeah. it was good. It was like baptism by fire. I was like, okay, wow. I think I'm making this movie. But I'm also glad that I saw all that because it helped me 
creatively because then I went down like I think six weeks later to make the movie. It gave me time to kind of process what I saw because like, you know you're seeing car accidents, you're seeing people who've been thrown from a motorcycle like a hundred feet, you know, and, and the damage after that. And I realized I was like, I don't want to make a film that's just about carnage. That's mm-hmm. like that's cheap filmmaking. That's but I was like, I want to make a film about the collateral around that. So the the way that tragedy impacts community. And so I was looking at like this, this country lives in constant tragedy. You had like, everyone knew someone who's died on the everyone had an uncle or a daughter or because everyone's riding on the motorcycle with five people and there's drunk people everywhere. And there's no streetlights and no, uh, no markings on the road. And, and it's just the roads are paved and smooth just enough that you can get really fast. So it's like this terrible cocktail, like this mixture of all the worst Scenarios, yes, yeah, yeah, worst, yeah, yeah, worst conditions put together to create just a terrible <laughs> situation for road accidents. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that that was the timeline. October research trip, January. Which, if you're trying to make a film, research trips are really, really it's like your scout day. Always, even if you're like, oh, I'm doing a doc, we'll just figure it out. No, 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 go scout. Go get on Google Earth. Go look at the country you're going to. Go go on to Tumblr or whatever. I don't know who uses Tumblr, but go look at pictures <laughs> of uh, of the country, like figure out where you're like research is so important. It's always going to. So that trip in January was really important and obviously had a huge impact on the film because I got to stay two nights with them and then process that. And then with that footage, go back and like really plan out my film be like, okay, here's what these people look like. Oh, here's the character I'm going to focus on. Like, and that, that really helped. When it comes to influencer marketing, there's a podcast that covers it all that you will want to add to your playlist. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. They talk about influencer marketing, social media, the creator economy, social commerce, and much, much more. They cover all aspects, including the creator economy, social commerce, the latest trends, the metaverse, TikTok trends, and that's just the beginning. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Add the podcast to your playlist right now. Wow. So I'm not a filmmaker, but I feel like you have a knack for catching some intense moments. And obviously with this film, you flew to the Dominican Republic, eyes wide open, knowing what you were going for. But how do you make sure that you're in the right place at the right time? Mm, I don't think you can ever ensure that. I think it's time. It like if there was a math equation for it, you know, the biggest variable would be time spent with your main character talking about Tiger King. Like that was filmed over years and years and years. You watch seven episodes, which is a pretty long doc series, but there is, I guarantee you hundreds of hours of footage that no one ever saw. And so you're watching this, you're like, I can't believe they got that footage. Well, they got that footage because they became part of the life of that character. And it's a huge commitment as a doc filmmaker. One of my favorite documentaries ever is uh, Overnighters. And I think it hopefully is still on Netflix. But that filmmaker, I believe his name's Jesse. I forget his last name right now. But my hat goes off to him. He spent a year in, I think it was North or South Dakota, f- filming there in this community. I don't want to give anything away, but just if you like docs, watch The Overnighters. But I think where you get in the right place at the right time is you spend time with your character and then you're part of their life and then the craziness unfolds in their life. So Briscate, I missed a lot of crazy stuff. You know, I only filmed for two weeks, but I made sure though that when the crazy stuff was happening, I was 
recreate, not recreating, but yeah, I got shots of them like running to their their ambulances so I could have cinematic moments like that, you know, like I knew I had wrote a script out for the film and if I didn't get stuff, I would ask them like, I was hoping to see a shot of your ambulance driving at night and like, you know, I couldn't get it in, well, I, you know, I couldn't get it from this angle. Can we go do that? So it helped the film that way. But if you want good TV, as they say, you got <laughs> you just got to be there. Yeah. Right place for the right amount of time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, man. So, Filmmaking is obviously more artistic and complex than simply creating video content for social media like a lot of our listeners would be doing. But I think the whole idea of story is something that overlaps. So, can you talk to us about what makes a film or story really compelling or like what sets the great ones apart from the mediocre ones? Yeah, I think with what you see with the the saturation of social media and YouTube travel videos, it's all beautiful content, but what it's missing is steaks. And I'm not talking like AAA beef steaks. I'm talking like S-T-A-K-E-S, like steaks, like like what someone's actually trying to go for in their life. Like what is it that they're trying to accomplish or, or what, you know, the, like is there a character arc? It, we just don't know with those films, if you see someone traveling in a country, you, there's no reason for them to keep traveling besides that it's beautiful. And I think what separates, I would say content from films, people use the word film a lot. And I think film it, it historically involves a character on a journey. And we know that they're trying to get something they don't have. And that could be that could be true love or once upon a time in Hollywood, you see Leo, he's trying to find resolve for his this turmoil that's going on in his mind and heart and his career, you know, and what makes Brad Pitt such a compelling character in that film is we don't really know what he wants. He just like, <laughs> so mm-hmm. he's he just chilling. To, yeah. He's just chilling, beating the crap out of people. But um, <laughs> I think that's what separates it. It's just simply a stakes is you, you look at a, a lot of young filmmakers and, and what's going to help them take the next jump is when they can start showing in their story and finding a character who needs something and raising the stakes in their filmmaking so that we want to see does this resolve like so that we actually care for the character so that we actually care for where the story is going and again i'll just jump back to tiger king they did a great job in raising the stakes like is this guy's zoo gonna fall apart like is this person gonna get murdered like are are they like the stakes are high like i want to know what happens what is going on and so that's what separates good filmmaking and i think if you can inject that into your film you will have a good story but unfortunately right now people seem to be more concerned about what lens and camera they're using than than what story they're telling Mm -hmm. have you seen brands do that well i'm just curious if you can like name some examples i know you've done some brand work but even like some examples that you've done where you've seen that executed well? Yeah, I think North Face and Patagonia, they fund a lot of films and they do that really well. For longer narrative, I'm trying to think of some other brands. I know BMW is film, uh, has given funding to, to films like that. I worked with Nikon on a really cool series of documentaries for when they released their D850 camera and we got to fly around the world filming these four different photographers and why I enjoyed those films is they were docs. They were about these photographers trying to take the best photo of their life. And it's like, can you actually just go out and do that? Like, and so that was, the stakes were high for them. You know, there was all this pressure. And so that was, that was interesting. So when brands can capture a story, not just the story isn't just our product is good. The story is this person is trying to achieve this or find this or discover this. That makes for a better story, better film. Cool. I love that. So 
Is there anything that we can pull from that, from the film side or even these like shorter documentary series that you talked about, like with Nikon, but translate that into social media content? Or is that, is it just simply too short to have a character and a resolution? No, I think, I think it's actually a really good test is like, can you in the first, you know, let's say it's a 60 second format, like, can you in the first 10 seconds, it's a great challenge, show, show a character and show what they need. And I think you can, I think commercials do it a lot in 30 seconds, you know, and then to 60 seconds. And so I think it's being just razor focused and super sharp and don't get me wrong. Not everything needs to be this intense journey, but it does need to have some sort of beginning, middle and end. Even just that helps, you know, I think it's a good question to ask yourself is in the first quarter or in the first 10% of this product, this video, this content we're putting out, does someone know what our main character needs or does someone know where this is going? Like what we're trying to accomplish, you know, and you have to establish with that. A lot of that is establishing the problem up front. And that's a, it's a tricky balance of not just being a, like an infomercial where you're showing just the issue up front, but mm-hmm. tying an emotional value to it. Right. Like why should someone care about this? Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. I think it's a, just a good conversation to have in general. Cause mm-hmm. I feel like so many people, especially content creators or brands on socials talk about storytelling but then it's not really, you know? And I yeah. think I think eventually we just need to call it out and say, like, this isn't a story. This is just this is just advertising. <laughs> right. Or so many brands want to do a video, but their video isn't a story or they just want to like yeah. get some video footage, you know. Right. But yeah. what yeah. what good is that gonna do anyone? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a time and a place to show your product off, but it's a terrible place and you see I, I've been caught here so many times on set where you where you as a filmmaker, like, oh, we're making a film, we're making a story. And then the brand wants the images that you've created in past documentaries, but they want just a commercial, they want that style injected into product. And so then you get caught in this, like the brand is like, well, they don't know it, but until they're on set, they're like, oh, actually, we just want like a branded video about our product. And I want, I, it's happened to me with some car companies where you talk about the story and then you're trying to shoot, shoot these moments and they're like, ah, well, we're just trying to sell our car. And, and I get it there. I mean, you yeah. got to sell your product to keep your company going. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. it just sucks when you get caught in that place. So it's made for me, it's just trying to say yes to the right projects and no to the wrong ones. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast Audio Branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Yeah. So you've kind of touched on some of the brand work you've done already. How do you go about looking for work like that? Do you usually just book it in between your passion projects or documentary projects or do you work with an agency? Yeah, I'm I'm repped by uh, four different production companies in different in different places in the world. And so they often bring me work that way, but also to the the best way is I kind of just let it come to me as it in there's sometimes I'll chase after a brand once in a while who I really like. For the most part, it's about creating the best passion projects in between commercial gigs and I try to create each passion project I create, I try to make it in a way that 
next time someone asks me to do a job, they're referencing that last job I did. Then it's proof of concept, you know, and then and then you do get a lot more freedom when someone knows what you can create, when when you can point back to a project you've made and you say, I'm going to make it look like this, but better, or I'm going to make it look like this, but black and white. And they're like, sick, though, you get a lot more freedom than if you're just trying to convince people with words being like, where it's going to look like this. And then they just they don't know there's there's no trust at that point. So every passion project I do, I'm like, is this something I could reference on set? Because that's equity, that's creative equity on set and or creative liberty. Rather, you, you get some more uh, freedom when you have a bit of a, a, a track record. So that's kind of how you establish your creative authority, I guess, is just by setting precedent with the projects that you're you're coming up with yourself. But then we're also just curious how you establish your authority like on set, you know, like with the team that you're working with, whether it's a team you've curated yourself or one that kind of came with an agency or a project. Obviously, I think there's some equity that comes just with the title of director here. But outside of that, like how do you how do you establish that rapport quickly so that you 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 remain the leader or the king? Yeah, no, there's there's two different kind of approaches. There's the there's some directors who, you know, want to fire someone their first 15 minutes on set to establish that and those, some of those directors actually create really amazing stuff, but that's not me. That's not my personality. I like to build rapport and then build off my portfolio. Uh, you know, so here's my portfolio. I'm a nice guy. Let's do this together. Let's collaborate. And I think a big thing for me is I just need to know I have people who have my back and I, I really enjoy working with people who are calm on set. When someone is cantankerous and agitated on set, like, those are people who I don't hire back or I, or I don't work with again because I like my set being a place of peace. Like you start filmmaking by being by yourself with a camera and you make really great decisions in that. And so for me being back on set, I want it to be a place where I'm not insecure. I'm with people who are supporting me and who who help create that place of peace. You're like, what, what decision are we making here? What, what are we doing or why are we doing this? But there's some people who just have a tendency to, to get riled up and that's that's how they accomplish things. And you can actually really see that right now with, with COVID. There's just some people who they love this because it's like, it's the chance to like, get super intense and call people out for coughing in public. <laughs> it's, it's like the drama they needed in their yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's just it. People want drama. And so that's not what I want. I don't want my set to be drama. Also too, I'm usually doing documentary style commercials. So I'm working with real people, not actors. And it's their first time being on set. And there's like, I was just on a commercial a couple of weeks ago down in the States and there was like 50 people running around this farm and these farmers had never never been like on set and they're just like they're like what the hell is this <laughs> like they're just you know and they're getting yeah i can tell some of them are kind of some of them are chill but some of them are like it starts making it more intense than it does you know what i love one of my favorite things i heard by someone who works with him is west with wes anderson he makes them hide all the trucks that carry all the gear and in his sets have so many like wardrobe and art direction and lighting and he actually makes them park them down the street and they have to like bring in the pieces to set one by one because he wants it to feel like a small indie film meanwhile his films are like millions of dollars so when i heard that a couple of years ago i was like oh that's actually how i like to do my filmmaking i like to use the big toys but i don't like it to feel like a michael bay film like i still want it to be where i started like in dark and i was like oh i i can do that that's okay so i think creating a set that you work best in is totally okay. And just being okay with that. Like if someone doesn't like the way you approach it, if, if, as long as it's like efficient still, you know, you're not losing your day, 
then do it. That's where I wanted to do my YouTube channel. I'm just telling people like there's principles, there's not rules in filmmaking. And, and unfortunately, we're so afraid to make a mistake and when we should just be doing it the, the way we want. Like the best people do it the way they want to. Like Cole Bennett, that young music video director, I just love his attitude. He's just like, I'm just going to – he's not arrogant. He's just like, I just want to do – I want to do things I like. And it's why he's just like – just slaying it at like 23 years old. Like it's crazy what he's accomplished already, but that's because he's doing him. He's, he's, mm. he's doing his own thing. Do you have any advice for those who are working in film or who are on a creative team and they want to work their way up into a director chair? Like yeah. what does that journey look like? Well, again, we've always spoke about it. You got to shoot passion projects on the side, but I think just having peace with the journey because you don't want to get your name out there too early when you're making garbage because then, <laughs> then it's like you want to really be putting your name on things when you have some momentum, I guess. I don't know if that's the right advice, but what's the best advice? I'm just trying to think for myself. You know, it was when I just started creating things the way I'd like them without caring what people thought. That was what was really empowering with Viscate. I shot that entirely the way I wanted to. There was no one to tell me otherwise. And then when I released it, people really liked that. And that was empowering. I was like, oh, like, I actually don't have to worry about what people think. I can just do what what I enjoy. And so I think if you're a director, for one, be easy to work with. Like, if you're talented and easy to work with, that's amazing. If you're talented and not easy to work with, I would rather work with someone who is untalented and easy to work with mm, uh, and interesting. so that doesn't mean just being agreeable or whatever but that means supporting people's ideas and not pulling their energy away from the project so being uh, low maintenance in that way that's great that's those are the, those are the people who get hired again and start working with great teams i love that man one of our earlier guests kind of talked about a similar thing of this idea of just being willing to create for free not for free for other people but without someone paying you yeah and then also just on your own time you know your own ideas and being able to kind of exercise that muscle of having full creative control and just bringing something from the start to the finish is often the thing that ends up getting you the most exposure or business or opportunity in the future anyway so i love that you kind of have that approach i just wanted to emphasize that to our listeners Mm -hmm. because i think that's a really valuable point that would be easy to miss Yeah, man. With everything going on in the world, you kind of referenced coronavirus already, but obviously there's this global pandemic looming over our heads and some people are freaking out more than others, but most of us are social distancing and working from home. And I guess a lot of brands too are hitting the pause button on their campaigns or shoots or whatever projects that they had planned in the first place to reevaluate their direction. So I'm curious how this is one affected you and your work but also I'd love to know from you as an established filmmaker and director, how can creatives or content producers maximize their time right now to do just that, like create and experiment and kind of maximize this sort of weird limbo space we're in. First, I guess, how has it impacted me? Well, I was literally on set, you know, we, we had something like 50 people on set for this job recently. And we went to lunch and the producers were like the job stopping. Like we're afraid the Canadian border is going to close. We need to fly people home. Like the client was like, this is done. Crazy. <laughs> and wow. so that was crazy. I've never had like a shoot canceled in the middle of the day. It turned out though that no one could get flights till the next day. So 
we were out in the middle of nowhere and I was like, you know, I think we should just finish the day filming. It's better to be out in these fields than stuck in airports or hotels, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, because right. we were like, we were truly in the middle of nowhere. And so we ended up finishing the day, but for like an hour there, it was canceled. I was like, all right, I guess the day's done. But um, yeah, I've had a lot of jobs paused. I haven't had a lot of things straight up canceled yet. All my post-production on a couple commercials I'm working on right now, that's still moving ahead, you know. No Countries and Island, my latest documentary, we're still working with our sound designers, but obviously everything's remote. But I guess the second part of your question of what can you be doing right now, a communicator I really like, Erwin McManus, I heard him say yesterday, he's like, right now, we're all in a cocoon, you know, like literal and more metaphorical, like we're all stuck in our homes. At the end of a metamorphosis, when a butterfly leaves the cocoon, it leaves a different creature. It went in as a caterpillar, left as a butterfly. And he was like, we have a decision right now in this time during coronavirus to grow, to reinvent ourselves, to become something new. And so he was like, what are you going to become? Who are you going to be when you leave quarantine? And that really hit me. I was like, what am I? Yeah, what am I doing right now? Like, this is a moment where all the society is paused. And, you know, I'm a three on the Enneagram, I'm a performer. So it takes everything for me just to sit still and and not do anything. And so I'm kind of like, what am I going to become out of the end of this? And so what would I want to become? Well, I would want to become a more, like a smarter director, I guess, you know, and I think the best directors are just really human. And so I'm taking this time to catch up on reading I haven't done. I'm also taking time to like catch up on my marriage because <laughs> I've been so busy before this, which... It's nice just to be playing like board games. You know, I just got a notification Scrabble arrived when I get home. Thank you, Amazon, for delivering essential items. (laughs) So I think it's a great chance to be human. I like that these, we we were put on this earth, not just to work, but to be in community and fellowship with each other. So for those in this time, yeah, you can like educate yourself. All those like weird things in the software that you feel like you never have time. Like if you're like, oh, I hear so many people that like, I want to edit a movie, but I don't know how to use Adobe Premiere. Well, then this is a great time to learn Adobe Premiere. Yeah. And so, which actually gives me that idea. I feel like I should just release some of my footage online and let people edit it like so they can, yeah, grow. But it's, this is a great chance to work on those skills that you've been saying you, you, you couldn't get to them. And so there's, there's, there's no excuse in that way, but it's also a great chance to, to grow, like read and unplug that way. So there's, I have this stack of books that's been on my nightstand for, for the past half a year. And I'm, I think it's a time that I chew through those and that'll be good. Just speaking of books, what, what's the last one you read that you just loved so much? Dare to Lead by Brené Brown. That's really good. Yeah, I reread that. It's leadership book. It's really good. Uh, and I'm finishing off What is the What? It's about funny, you know, I started the podcast talking about the Darfur War in Sudan. This is about just that and it's firsthand account uh, from a from a child soldier and it's just written really well. I've, I've kind of read enough of those books, but in a way that like, you know, you hear a lot of that can be recycled stories, but this one is written in a unique way. And I really appreciate the way they did that. It's, it's, it's pretty cinematic the way they switch between locations in the book. So I joined that. Nice. I love how you mentioned learning new skills. Um, yeah. I want to talk about your YouTube channel, which seems like it's built just for that, for other people to learn skills. And I saw that you hit 40,000 subscribers, which is no laughing matter. That's yeah, awesome. That's serious business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks. Can you tell us about why you started that and what it's evolved to be now and and what your vision is for it? Well, I mentioned in the beginning, like 
things that motivate me is empathy and education. And so that that's kind of the empathy side of it is that I never had a rubric to how to become a director and it could be really stressful some years and you feel like a failure. And so I'm there to just try to calm people's nerves and be like, you know, everyone's journey is different and that's okay. And then the education is I want to give people, I, I saw that there was a huge gap on YouTube where people were talking about the latest camera lenses or the latest, like how to color correct a photo. So you get more likes on Instagram, but not too many people were talking about documentary directing or commercial directing and and talking about the kind of the unsexy things like location scouting <laughs> that people don't, but they're, they're the things that if you don't do them, you won't, they, they really hurt your film. So I was like, you know what? I see a niche and I know that niche well. I, I think I should fill it. And there was also a practical side. I was like, if I ever want to start a family, I, I can't be traveling around the world constantly filming movies. I need to be at home. And everyone's like, oh, is your work stopped now that we're all on self-isolation? I'm like, oh, no, it's kind of picked up because like, you know, YouTube, everyone's on it so much now. It's, right. a, it's yeah. a great chance to connect with the community because everyone's on their computers. But yeah, I think that's kind of where it started. I'm, I'm trying to provide information that didn't exist out there. And it's been really cool. You know, I've been doing the channel just for over a year now. And I mean, and the emails now are starting to come in where people are like, hey, you know, I've been watching your channel since the beginning. And I finally did a documentary and I listened to, you know, I took your advice and here it is. And it's really wow. cool seeing people create art and create meaningful projects, whether it's just even about like, couple people made films about their family who've you know been battling cancer and stuff or made it about different issues in their countries and that's kind of what I wanted to do was help people create films that they personally feel have a lasting impact and so it's cool to be a part of that in that way to have some some way contributed to their film man I was gonna ask for all your peers thinking about starting a YouTube channel is it worth it but I think you just answered that right there <laughs> just even with the couple people that have sent you document documentaries that they've created yeah inspired by you that's amazing yeah. I think everyone has a voice. There's something that you know that other people don't, or there's just something that you know really well. And if you talk about that, then you'll do well. The, the YouTube channels either have to be entertaining or educational. And if they can be both, your channel will grow if you put out one video a week. There's a litany of obviously other little things that help. But I, I say, if you're thinking about a YouTube channel, do it, start it. I debated for like two years to do it. And I, you know, and in one year, the channel grew to 40,000 subscribers. I was like, oh, I wonder where it would be if I started it when I thought I should have, you know, mm. like three years ago now. Yeah. Is that the cadence that you do? Do you post a video once a week? No. Uh, <laughs> well, Corona, yes. Uh, okay. Normal life, no. I do one video every two weeks. And I've been lucky enough that my channel has actually grown pretty fast for that in for how infrequent I post. So it, sometimes it's like once a month, but I've always, the rule I've had for myself with my YouTube channel is my filmmaking comes first. If YouTube is not benefiting my filmmaking, then it's hurting it. And so there's months where I'm so busy filmmaking that I can't get to my YouTube and I'm just okay with that. Because if I'm not growing as a director, then my YouTube channel will actually be hurting because I'm not providing new content. I'm not providing new footage. I already feel like I reuse so much of the documentaries in the past. I wish I had new documentary footage to show people. So for me, I, I want to be filmmaking so that people feel like they're listening to a filmmaker who does YouTube, not a YouTuber who talks about filmmaking. 
Nice. I think that's really important, just the way you, you describe that, like kind of setting your priorities. And I, I think a lot of creatives need to hear that because we tend to overcommit ourselves yeah. and spread ourselves really thin and then feel like they all have equal weight. Mm-hmm. And then totally. we're just kind of like crashing all over the place between one thing and the next and not really doing any of, any of them well. So, I love that model of just kind of like identifying from the gate what your priority is and making that the main thing. And then everything else can kind of be secondary to that. That's really cool. Yeah, totally. I I wrote a mission statement when I graduated school. I thought, you know, I was already worried because I was going into 3D and I was like, oh, I'm worried I won't do documentary again. So I wrote down like a couple statements and one was like, I'm a documentary filmmaker. And then another was like, I'm a generous person. Like I wanted that to be part of who I was. I don't, I never wanted to become selfish. And so I you know, in those things, if, and I wrote down a few more things, I need to go back and read them. But those were, were guidelines for me. And so I think knowing who you are will help you decide what you aren't. And your no is just as powerful as your yes, especially early in your career. And so learning what to say no to is actually really helpful. Boundaries, boundaries, you know, discipline creates freedom and boundaries create, I guess, some creative freedom when you have a space to really own. So good. We like to ask every guest this question. What brands or creatives or directors do you think are making waves right now? And who's catching your eye? So this is not to be cute, but Trey Schultz, who I love that you guys call your podcast Waves, because that's named after my favorite film of last year, Waves. Waves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a sick film. Oh, it's so good. I had like a spiritual experience watching that just because it was like, it was halfway between like an insane like Kanye West video meets Place Beyond the Pines meets like a better version of uh, Moonlight. Like it was just like, Oh my gosh! It's a better such a version sick- of Moonlight. Yeah, wow. it's what it, it's like. I watched Waves and I was like, "Yeah, that's kind of what people wanted Moonlight to be." And I think it was. I think Waves is better than Moonlight in many ways. Like there was more variance in motion. Moonlight was a different film. Yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, Moon, Moonlight's a- not a bad film. It was still a really good film. But uh, but I Dude, think you're Waves. Just, you're just backing down from the hot take right now. <laughs> no, I know, I know. No, but now I'm remembering. I was like, "Oh yeah, Moonlight was good, but yeah. Waves was better." I can All say right. that cool. Waves is All better. Right. Like the second half of Waves. Is that on Netflix? I don't know. It hopefully should be. Uh, I feel like it, I, it recently came out. Yeah. Well, no, it was like I saw it at TIFF in September. Got and it. And then they released it back into theater or they released it into theaters in December. And then I'm sh- I mean, no one's going to theaters right now. So <laughs> hopefully I'm sure we online. can find it. Yeah. yeah we'll, watch we'll Waves. So down. yeah, Trey Schultz, he's, he's killing it. And also I've just been going back over like Cole Bennett, just kind of, he's a young music video director who I, I really appreciate what he's doing. Nice. Cool. So last question, tell us what you're currently working on. Specifically, I'd love to hear a little bit more about No Country is an Island, your most recent project, and then let our listeners know where they can connect with you. Yeah, right now I'm just finishing off just the last stages going into color correction next week on No Country is an Island, which is a documentary about the Easter attacks that happened a year ago in Sri Lanka. There was a coordinated terrorist attack on three different churches, a couple different hotels. 500 people injured, over 300 killed. And it follows two best friends, a Muslim and a Christian, who uh, are working with the victims of the Easter attack. And that's the underlying tension. You're seeing uh, uh, you know, an Islamic attack on these churches and, when, and these friends who have to kind of work through that together to help these victims. So that that's No Countries and Island. Excited to release that. Uh, the trailer's up on my channel and on my website. And so, yeah, you can kind of connect with me there. Um, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Mark Andrew Bone, or if you just type in 
Mark Bone into YouTube, it it comes up first. It used there's this like really gnarly rapper in St. Louis who used to come up before me, also named Mark Bone. So people are like, they're like, oh, where can I find you? They're like, did you release like a music video about like cocaine and like killing hookers? And I was like, no, it's not me, <laughs> it's not me. So oh, there's, uh, yeah, you can find me on YouTube or just kind of Mark Andrew Bone is the handle there and on Instagram or markbone.com to see all my work. Amazing, man. We'll make sure to get that stuff in the show notes for everybody. Appreciate but, it. Dude, thanks for joining us. Yeah. This has been great. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good to hang. Uh, yeah. You know, like it's podcasting, I'm sure is going to take a really big boost through this self-isolate because that's all you do when you do a podcast. You're just self-isolating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what we're true. doing right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, man. I Honestly, a lot of our listeners have been just begging for someone in film. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've touched a lot of different sort of creative expertises or specialties. And this is the one that we just really needed to fill that blank for people. Amazing. So yeah, this dialogue well, has been awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, have them reach out. I, I try to answer back to most comments on YouTube what I can. And so they can reach out to me that way or, or on Instagram, but happy to answer questions. But uh, thank guys, thanks so much for having me on the show. I, I love what you're doing. I love Waves. You guys are killing it. Yeah. I just thank you again for having me on this. It's, it's nice to hang with you. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. The pleasure was ours, man. This episode of Wave Social Podcast is powered by Arcade Studios. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at wavesocialpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you've got questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, hit us up at wavesocial on Instagram. Thanks for joining us.